0: This morning we're going to be jumping back into our series covering the Sermon on the Mount. Again, last week, Pastor Kyle, we talked about the importance of of baptism. But over the past month or so, what we've been looking at is the Sermon on the Mount. And this is Jesus' most extensive teaching in all of the scriptures. And it's found in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And right now, we're currently in the first section of this. I think we're going to be in this series for like 60 weeks. So just buckle up. We're here for the long haul. I don't know if that's actually a number, but we did a series, I think it was like a couple years ago, He is Worthy, that just like never ended. And uh, I think this one has a good chance to, to beat it for the longest series in the life of our church. But the reason why we're taking a look at this is we believe that this is critical. That this is Jesus' longest teaching in all of the scriptures And and kind of the way that we've been viewing it is this is Jesus' manifesto This is what he would set before his disciples What he would set before you and I And he would give us kind of a detailed understanding of, Of what it means to follow him as a disciple of Christ Not just simply profess that we have a faith in Jesus But live a life in accordance with the teachings of Jesus And right now we're in this first section called the Beatitudes And it's the first 12 verses in Matthew chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, you can get them out and turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read through the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5 together. Would you stand with me? We've been doing this every week as we read through this beatitude section and and kind of hear the word of the Lord this morning. So I'm going to read through it, Matthew chapter 5, um, and and feel free to join me. I I don't think there'll be the, the scripture on the screen, so if you have a Bible, you can open it up. Verse one, it says, one day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up to the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. God blesses the kingdom, or excuse me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. You can have a seat. Again, this section here that we just read is is called the Beatitudes. And and, and in many ways, I think what the Beatitudes, if we could summarize them, the Beatitudes are Jesus's attempt at answering kind of this age-old question of like, hey, what is the good life? What does it mean for us to live a life where we will find fulfillment and joy and happiness and peace and the things that we so often strive for and look for? And what we just read, I think, is a summary description, if you will, of Jesus's answer to that question. Now, I don't know about you, but, but that's not necessarily the things that I would put forth as like, hey, what is it for me in my life that, that, that I need to do and embody and the person I need to become in order for me to thrive? I don't know about you, but it's like, well, if I'm persecuted, I'm on my way there. That, that's not on the top of my list. And, and I did some, some research, I Googled it, uh, this, this week about uh, where, where, where culture might lead us. Like, what, is it, what would the narrative of culture be in terms of, hey, how do I find happiness? What does it look like for me to search in my life and find joy? And, and I have a few of the top answers that I found from, from either Forbes magazine and Psychology Today were the two top results. And here's a few of the kind of recommendations that they would point us towards. Search inward. Hold on to your values. And accept the good. Now, there's obviously much more to be said there. If you were to do your own uh, research, Googling, uh, about what the answer to those questions might be, you would come across a lot more than that. But I think if I could summarize a lot of what I read, it would be that the kind of the cultural narrative for what it means for you to find fulfillment in your life would be to look inward. Look inward. Because somewhere inside of you, lies this like hidden gem of happiness. And all you need to do is search inward enough to find it. Look inward and what you'll find is that you possess everything you need in order to be happy, in order to live this good life. This kind of stands in opposition however, to what the scriptures would teach. I think there is a a degree of similarity in that the scriptures in different ways would call us to do some introspective work to look inward, but the outcome of what looking inward means as a follower of Jesus is so much different than what culture would tell us. Culture would tell us, again, look inward, and what you will find is that in and of yourself you are capable and able to achieve the happiness that you are after. Scripture would tell you, go ahead, look inward, And what you're going to find is that in and of yourself, you aren't capable of achieving the things that you're desperately after. That that there is a void that only can be filled by the person and work of Jesus. That there is a void as we read through the Beatitudes here and we see that, that Jesus would teach us that blessed are the humble That blessed are those who are persecuted. That blessed are the peacemakers. These things, what we find, what we discover as Christians, I believe, is when we look inward, we say, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm not capable of being a peacemaker in and of myself. My flesh does not desire or long for peace or long for humility. It's the opposite. My flesh desires to be noticed and recognized and it yearns for pride. My flesh desires justice and kind of vengeance, not peace. And so as we look at these things, what we find is, is what scripture, I think, would teach us is the teachings of Jesus unfold throughout this Sermon on the Mount and what culture would tell us. These things are, are, are opposed to one another. And there's this tension that exists within the kingdom of God and the Beatitudes that I think Jesus has summarized as well in Matthew chapter 16. He says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Whoever wants to save their life, protect it, seek my desire, build my own kingdom, Jesus says that is the road that leads to life being lost. But whoever loses their life for my sake, for my kingdom, that is a life that ultimately ends in being found being in this place of finding this abundant life that God speaks as a promise to us as followers of Jesus, this life and life abundant that he's come to give. This morning we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5 verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers or blessed are those who work for peace for they will be called the children of God. Now, if you're really dialed into this series right about now, you're going, uh, hello, what about verse 8? Are we just skipping over verse 8? No, we won't. We'll come back to that next week. But we're going to skip verse 8 for this week, and and, and right now we're going to look at verse 9. God blesses those who are peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. If you've been around Anchor for a while, Kyle likes to call me the resident historian. That's a nice way of saying that I'm a nerd, and I'm okay with that. And as such, you're going to get some definitions this morning morning, you're welcome. Uh, So what is a peacemaker? I think that's pretty important for us to understand. If the scripture would tell us that blessed are the peacemakers, it would do us well to understand what does it mean then to be a peacemaker. And I think as peacemakers there are two primary ways that peacemaking unfolds in our life. And it is seeking and making peace between ourselves and others, and it's seeking and making peace between others and the Lord. That these are two primary ways that the outflowing of what peacemaking would look like in our life. And a peacemaker, again, is someone who looks to reconcile these two groups of people. That word reconcile is one that's going to be found all over in the scriptures we're going to read today. And it's found all over in the scripture itself. And this word reconcile simply means to kind of restore a relationship in a relationship that used to be broken. So there used to be a relationship that was whole, but now it's broken and is in need of reconciliation. In fact, I would argue that the scriptures declare that what seeking peace looks like is making reconciliation. That these two things are almost synonymous with each other throughout the scope of what the Bible would have to teach and say. There's a a real problem that exists when there's a lack of peace, when there's unresolved conflict in our life. In fact, uh, some studies, nerd alert, uh, some studies from the University College of London and the clinical psychology, uh, the Journal of Clinical Psychology have found that unresolved conflict or a lack of peace can lead to higher levels of anxiety, depression, stress. It can lead to insomnia, headaches, and digestive problems. So a lack of peace in our life has real physical and emotional consequences. And I think scripture speaks very clearly to the reality that a lack of peace also breeds spiritual problems. That a lack of peace ends up creating fertile ground for things like judgment, bitterness, resentment, malice, hatred... These things all of a sudden start to well up in our life if we aren't careful and if we allow a lack of peace with a brother or sister to maintain a place in our life. And and I just want to be honest here this morning, and maybe you can relate to this, maybe you can't, but, but I don't think that the human default setting is like peacemaking. I don't think that that's just, like, the innate way that you and I operate. Again, this might just be me, but when I'm, like, driving and someone cuts me off or something, my heart does not immediately jump to a place of, like, man, I just want to, like, seek peace with that guy or gal and be reconciled to them and have our relationship be restored. That's not my heart. It's not that. It tends to be one of two other things. It tends to be this judgment or vengefulness that wells up inside me, kind of this like, oh, I'll show you, oh, I'll I'll show you. Or on the other end of that spectrum, it tends to be apathy or passivity. This sort of, you know what? You hurt me, this relationship is over. And it begins to wither and it begins to die. I don't, I, 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 my wife and I, a, a show that we like to watch, is Parks and Rec, I don't know if anyone's seen it. It's, it's a great show. But on, on that show, there's a character, his name's Tom Haverford. If you haven't seen the show, I don't know how to describe him. But uh, he opens his own business and he invites his co-workers to join. And he, and he says, look, if you don't join me, you're on my dunzo list. And if you call me and you're like, hey, Tom, you want to hang out? I'll be like, nope, we're dunzo. Like, that's this passivity, right? Like, no, you've hurt me. Our relationship is over. It's donezo. It's donezo. But on a a more serious note, when it comes to this passivity or this reality of, of maybe just... Being apathetic in our relationship This is the one that I think if we're honest Tends to show up more in personal And intimate friendships and relationships Where there once was a deeper connection And there's been a wound that's been Experienced there It's not all that common maybe for that judgment Or that vengefulness to find its way to the surface But that passivity where maybe we just Don't return the phone call or the text Or maybe we just slowly Start to distance ourselves from that relationship And watch it wither And eventually die on the vine Neither of these ways, this kind of judgment or vengefulness or this passivity, neither of them are the way of Jesus. Jesus would call us to seek peace. He would call us to be reconciled to one another. So as we think about this reality of seeking peace and being reconciled, I want to first look at what it might look like and mean for us as followers of Jesus to seek peace between ourselves and others. And if you look at Matthew chapter 5, just a few verses ahead of where we are now, don't worry, we'll get there in like six months, but in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 23, Jesus says this, he says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift." maybe many of us are familiar with this passage but but i think this is one of those statements of jesus that we don't quite grasp the full uh, seriousness and and, and sacrifice of what he is telling us here because the way that we live today in Missoula in 2023 is so much different than the culture that would have been present not only in Jesus's times but in the time of the Israelite people of the Old Testament. So we're going to take a little journey back into the Old Testament to hopefully better understand the degree with which Jesus is serious about making peace. The language here in this passage, offering your gift at the altar, is one, again, that might not be something you and I are very, accustomed to. But his hearers, the people who would have heard Jesus speak this, would have been very familiar with what he meant. In the Old Testament, if you read through the books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, what you're going to find is that it was the instruction of the people of Israel in part of their act of worship to God that they would be called to bring different gifts and offerings to these places called the temple or the tabernacle. And this was done as an act of kind of obedience in worship to the Lord. This was something that was deeply ingrained in their practice of what it meant to worship Yahweh in their culture. And each one of these gifts and offerings had very detailed and specific outlines in scripture as to how it was to be given, when it was to be given, by whom it was to be given, and who was to administer this practice. I mean, it's, it's pretty cumbersome. And if you've read through Deuteronomy and Leviticus, you know what I mean. Because like 15 verses into the same offering, you're like, okay, I get this one. Let's move on to the next. For example, the burnt offering uh, in the book of Leviticus, there's 11 verses that are dedicated specifically to how this gift and offering should be given in the temple. It It was a big deal. It was a big deal in the individual's life, it was the big deal in the community's life, and it required a great deal of sacrifice, because not only were you called to bring this offering, some of which was maybe the first harvest of, of, your, of the grain in which you would, you would harvest, some of it was an animal to kind of provide a, a guilt offering uh, for sins in your life, there was a great deal of uh, kind of economic sacrifice that went along with this, but additionally, some people would have to travel tens if not hundreds of miles from where they lived to, to make this kind of journey and trek to the temple. So so I think that might set the scene a little bit better for us in terms of what Jesus did. If you just walked 50 miles, and you just went through the harvest, and you have the first fruits of that harvest, and you are in the middle of kind of the worship service, like right now in the middle, it's your turn, and you're walking up to the front, and you're giving that gift. And Jesus says, as you're there, if you remember That a brother or sister has something against you. I want you to leave it. And I want you to go be reconciled. And come back. I want you to leave this sacrifice that you've gone through such a great ordeal to bring to me. I want you to hit pause in this moment where you are expressing your worship to the Lord. And I want you to go and seek to be at peace with your brother or your sister. And I don't know about you, but this seems almost backwards to me. Like I've made all of this effort, all of this work to be in right standing with you, Lord. Like how about I just finish this process real quick and then I'll go seek to be restored and seek peace with my brother and sister. And Jesus says, no, before you would finish, as you're doing it, if you remember that a brother or sister has anything against you, if there's a grievance present there, go and be reconciled. And I think that this is the reality that Jesus would speak to us. Because if you and I, as followers of Jesus, truly know the gospel and have understood the work of God in our life, seeking peace and being reconciled with a brother or sister is going to be one of the primary ways and fruit of what that gospel looks like in our life. Because we understand the work of Jesus. We understand that he has gone before us and he has done that very thing. He has sacrificed himself so that he has made peace between us and the Lord and we are simply following suit in the outflowing of the gospel in our life. That this is a big, big call for Jesus calling us to go and be reconciled to our brothers and sisters We see similar language in the writings of Paul found in in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 12 verse 18. Paul says, if it is possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. Now, I do think that it's worthy and, and, and important to note that in order for, I think, true, complete reconciliation to happen, there needs to be kind of a mutuality in that process between two parties. In other words, if a relationship is broken, and, and I kind of come to the table to restore that relationship, but the other party wants no part in that, obviously the relationship isn't totally whole again. And I think that's part of what Paul's saying here. As far as it depends upon you, live at peace. Meaning we don't get the privilege of just saying, you know what, there's conflict here, and even if I asked for their forgiveness, they wouldn't forgive me anyway, so what's the point? The point is that you and I are called to seek peace and be peacemakers. As far as it depends upon you, we are called to seek and make peace with our brothers and our sisters. We can't control other people's responses. And if that's, that's not something that we're aware of, you're welcome for that little nugget of truth this morning. What we can control is our response, is our understanding, is our grasping, is our moving into the reality that Christ has called us to be peacemakers in the life of ourselves and brothers and sisters around us. So a question for us to consider this morning, in your life, Is there someone that you need to go and be reconciled to? This idea, this concept of peacemaking, it's only there because there's conflict. Like you don't need to seek and make peace if there's no tension, if there's no brokenness, if everything's fine and dandy, peace is already existing there. But being a peacemaker means that we're stepping into places where there is a lack of peace, where there is conflict, where there is tension. And so I ask you this morning, is there someone in your life, even maybe now, that the Spirit of God is bringing to the forefront of your mind to seek and make peace and be reconciled to? Maybe that looks like extending forgiveness. Maybe that looks like you need to go to them and confess and repent and say, I'm so sorry for the way I've been behaving or what I said or how I acted. Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe it it looks like you forgiving somebody else. But is there someone in your life who the Lord is maybe calling you to seek and make peace with? Because this idea of being a peacemaker is so central to what it means to be followers of Jesus. However, it's not the only component of what seeking and making peace might look like. I think, again, as we've discussed, there's seeking and making peace between ourselves, And and others And I think that they're seeking and making peace Between others and the Lord I think these are two of the primary ways That scripture would talk about this idea of making peace So let's take a look at what it might look like To make peace between ourselves Or excuse me, others and the Lord Galatians chapter 6 Verse 1 Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin You who live by the Spirit Should restore that person gently But watch yourself Or you also may be tempted James 5.19 is another verse. We won't read it here this morning, but it essentially paints this very similar, if not the same picture, that there are times in our life As we walk with the Lord and are surrounded by brothers and sisters in the faith, the people here in this room, the people here outside of this room who consider themselves to be followers of Jesus, there are times in our life where our brothers and sisters will be walking and living in a way that is not in line with the teachings and way of Jesus. There's maybe times in our life where we are that brother and sister in the life of someone else, where we aren't living in a way that follows the ways and the teachings of Jesus. And I want to address something on that note that I've I've come to see as as a very kind of familiar pattern that I've seen in some of my pastoral conversations over the last three, four, five years. Many of us, again, here's another verse from the Sermon of Jesus. It's not because I'm like trying to keep everything in this passage. It's because this this teaching of Jesus found in the Sermon on the Mount is so incredibly powerful. Many of us might be familiar with Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew 7, starting in verse 1, he says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, it's been my experience in some of these conversations that there are so many heartfelt, just wonderful, beautiful followers of Jesus who earnestly try to live this reality out. I know that, uh, and have been on the other end of of times and experiences where where I have felt judgment within the church, within the body of Christ, and I'm not trying to excuse that. I feel like, generally speaking, especially by those outside the church, the church tends to be viewed as a place of judgment. I'm not trying to move past that. All I'm trying to say is it has been my experience in some of my pastoral conversations with people that they have an earnest and honest heart to not judge that they want to see this follow and flow out of their life. And I think it is a beautiful and a commendable thing. However, what I've also seen is that it starts to breed one primary unintended consequence in our life. As we seek to to follow suit in the way of Jesus here and, and really try to develop a heart where it's absent of judgment, there's one issue that I've seen continue to develop time and time again, so let's keep reading in this passage, Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite? First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is kind of the rest of the teaching of Jesus, and this is kind of his way of depicting what judgment might look like. And again, in an earnest attempt to follow this teaching, I think so many of us, and it is wonderful, are very, very aware of the log that is in our own eye. Again, that is beautiful and commendable. But what I want to do is I want to read this entire passage What I want us to think about this morning is not just isolating one or two or three of these verses, but understanding the flow of all of them when joined together, because it's been my experience that one of, if not the primary unintended consequence of us trying to say, you know what, hey, who am I to judge, is that we don't follow and execute through the entire sequence of this. So Jesus lays out before us, don't judge, right? And then he says, why do you even consider the speck in your brother's eye when there's a log in your own eye? And he calls the people hypocrites. And what would make them a hypocrite is if they bypassed the log in their own eye and simply went straight for the speck in a brother's eye. But that's not what he says here. He says, how can you say, let me take the speck out of your own eye when there is a plank all along in yours? First take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck. your brother's eye the completion of the sequence in which Jesus is calling us not to judge is not to simply stand by and be idle as our brother and sister might be living in a life of sin that's not the end goal here and I think if we're honest with ourselves, one of the primary reasons that we just kind of sit by idly is because we tolerate sin in our own life first we're okay with the log in our own eye And we look around, and we see other logs or other specks of sawdust, and we're like, nah, it's not that bad, and we're aware that it is a log, it is one of the Bonner Lumber Mill big-time logs in our own eye, and we're like, I get it, I see it. But because there's a degree of tolerance for sin in our own life, because we don't take seriously the call of God that the wages of sin is death, when we see a speck in a brother or sister's eye, we're like, it's not that big of a deal. It's fine. Let me just be honest, that's not loving our brother or sister well at all. That is not what it looks like to be a peacemaker. And yes, it is imperative that the start of this process begins between ourselves and the Lord desperately crying out for the Spirit of God to show us the wickedness that still is in our own heart. Show me, God, what areas of sin in my life still hinder me from following you? What areas do, by the power of your Spirit, you need to uproot in my life so that I can walk in freedom, not in bondage? That's step one, undoubtedly. But it doesn't end there. That as followers of Jesus, we are called to be peacemakers. And that means walking alongside of our brother or sister and with grace and with mercy but with love and with truth, being able to say, hey, can we talk about this, the speck of sawdust? I don't know about you if you've ever experienced something like this, but I know in prepping and reading for this, there was one example of this that just came to the forefront of my mind. And it was, I think it was in, in 2016 or 17, I was, I was leading a young adults group at the time, and uh, I had a bunch of people over to, to the house I was living at at the time to, to have a game night. And we were playing all sorts of board games, it was a ton of fun. And one of the, the people brought over a game called Cards Against Humanity. And I don't know if you're familiar with this game, but, but this game, essentially, like, what makes this game or sets this game apart is it is insanely crass and vulgar and crude. Like, that's, that's what makes it fun and enjoyable. And, and they're like, hey, can we play this? And, and I kind of had that moment of internal struggle where I was like, ah, oh, yes, we can. We can. And so we played it as a group. And uh, we played kind of one round of it, and, and there was some laughter, but you could kind of tell, like, everyone was a little bit uncomfortable. And as soon as that one round got over, I was like, okay, let's, what's the next game? Let's move on. Let's play something else. And, and the night ended, and I was like, okay, whew, we got out of it. And uh, late, later that evening, I got a, I got a phone call from, from a dear friend who was there. Her name's Deanne, and she said, hey, can we, can we talk about uh, the game night? And I was like, yeah, what's up? And she kind of paused for a moment. And at that moment, like, I don't know, you can just kind of feel it. You're like, oh, boy, we're, we're in for something here. She said, hey, I just, I want to talk to you about playing that game as a group. And I was like, yeah. She goes, I just, I think you, you shouldn't have let us do that. You're the leader of that group. And people were looking for you to move us away from that. And, and if nothing else, I was extremely uncomfortable as we played that. And even now, as I tell that, like, I can remember exactly where I was in that house when she called me. And I can kind of feel that, like, gut-level defensiveness and just, like, almost shame creep up in my spirit. But after a few moments, I just felt so clearly that the Holy Spirit was like, she's right. She is right. And I just told her, you're right. And I'm really sorry. That was not something I should have done. I should have, I should have said something and I did not lead well. And I am sorry for not doing that. And I, I, again, that was six years ago and I still remember it. And I am so grateful that my sister did not sit idly by and just say, you know what? It's not that big of a deal. And I know for certain, because I know the heart of Deanne, I know for certain if she was here, she'd be the first one to tell you, look, I'm not perfect before the Lord. He's still working so many things out in my life. And she was aware of the log in her eye, but she did not let that hinder her from speaking truth and making peace between herself and me and me and the Lord, calling me into repentance and a deeper way of following Jesus. I don't want us to be a church in any way that is some sort of sin hunting we're all just kind of waiting for somebody to put a step out of line and then we pounce on them if you've heard that from this I must have done a terrible job talking about it what I want this community to be is a community of people that is desperate to see sin eradicated from our life that is desperate to in our own heart first to say Lord search my heart. Get rid of the sin that so easily entangles me and binds me, for I know that sin leads to death, and I want no part of it any longer. And as we embrace that posture before the Lord in grace by the leading of God's Spirit to be able to speak truth and love to our brothers and sisters and say, follow us on this journey, sin is leads to death and it needs to be ripped and stripped out of our life for that is why Christ has come. He has come to set us free from the bondage that sin often ensnares us in. That's what I desire for this church. That's what I believe part of what it looks like to be peacemakers in a community of believers would look like. That we would first take sin so seriously in our own life and as a result we would take sin seriously in the life of our church i think one other primary way that being peacemakers on behalf of others in the lord looks like is this ministry of reconciliation that paul talks about in second corinthians chapter 5 he says this in second corinthians chapter 5 starting in verse 17 therefore if anyone is in christ let the new creation come the old has gone the new is here All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. That as followers of Jesus, you and I, if you were to keep reading in this passage, uh, the language that Paul would use of us is we are ambassadors of Jesus. We are ambassadors of Jesus, that we would carry with us kind of an emblematic nature of what God's kingdom would look like. And as a result, we've been given this gift of reconciliation, this ministry of reconciliation, so that in the spaces and places that you and I inhabit, in our workplaces, in our families, in the classrooms, on the teams, wherever we might find ourselves, that we would seek to always proclaim the gospel of Jesus and offer hope to those who do not have it and be ready at all times to be able to share the goodness of the gospel as Paul lays out here that in Christ God has reconciled the world to himself and he is no longer counting people's sins against them for he has given us this ministry of reconciliation that we would be people who would evangelize and share the good news. And guess what? Salvation or convincing someone to believe in Jesus is not on our shoulders. That's a work of the spirit of God and him alone. But it is our opportunity to join in the ministry of God's spirit and be bold in sharing the good news of Jesus to those who have yet to hear it or receive it, continuing to remind them and put before them the reality that Jesus has bore their sin on the cross. And by a result of his sacrifice, they now have the opportunity to be reconciled back to God this is the ministry of reconciliation. And this is another way that you and I can seek to be peacemakers between others and the Lord. Again, another question maybe for you to consider is, are you being an agent of peace with other people? Are you being an agent of peace? Are you seeking to make peace in areas of of your life or even in the life of others as as, as we just looked at in Matthew chapter seven? Are we allowing the work of the Holy Spirit in our own life to humble us first, but not sideline us as we live life alongside of our brothers and sisters in the Lord? Are we willing to have difficult or hard conversations in order to love someone well and move their focus back on to Jesus? Are we willing to be bold and share the gospel of Jesus to those around us in our life who have yet to experience the love of Christ? I would guess at some point this morning there's been a degree of of discomfort maybe that you felt. As we've talked about this idea of being a peacemaker, maybe as we've talked about it in terms of being reconciled to a brother or sister, maybe the Lord, again, has brought someone to the forefront of your mind. As we've talked about uh, this idea of, of making and seeking peace between others and the Lord, maybe there's somebody in your life who you need to have a difficult conversation with after some work with the Holy Spirit, asking him to show you what is ensnaring you still in your own heart that he is calling you to seek peace and point someone's eyes back to him and the goodness of the gospel. Or maybe there's a coworker or a family member or a classmate in your mind right now that that God might be sharing or calling you to share the gospel with. I would guess as a result of any of these things, there might be a degree of discomfort that's present. And if that's the case, I think that's the exact right starting place for us in this moment. That as we talk about the Beatitudes and as we read through the Sermon on the Mount, if there isn't a degree of discomfort by this teaching of Jesus, I'm not quite sure we're allowing it to penetrate to our heart. Because this idea of seeking and making peace is so contrary to the flesh that again part of what this scripture would be calling us to do is to allow the spirit of God to penetrate us deeply and show us in our life areas where he is calling us to make peace often in areas that we want to totally turn the blind eye to in a wonderful book called uh, the sermon on the Mount and human flourishing dr jonathan pennington he calls the beatitudes black gold black gold he says this it is divine gold of priceless worth But it appears to be only darkness. What Jesus proclaims as being a state of flourishing includes many things that humanity naturally or even vehemently seeks to avoid. Poverty and spirit, mourning, humility, hunger and thirst, mercifulness and peacemaking and especially suffering through persecution. That again, upon first glance, as we read through these beatitudes, as our conversation here concludes on this notion of being peacemakers, that upon first glance, it looks like, man, this is just darkness. I just am called to go and, and, and offer forgiveness to those who have hurt me. I'm just supposed to go in humility and and just say, you know what, I am so sorry for the way that I behaved or what I said or how I acted towards you. I don't want any part of that. How is this supposed to lead me to a place of flourishing, of thriving, of blessedness? But as Dr. Pennington lays out, I think there's so much truth to this reality that the more we begin to embrace this darkness, to press into what appears to be this darkness of of self-sacrifice, what we actually begin to find It is there that we begin to find the life and life abundant that Jesus has come to give us. It is in the most uncommon place. It is in the most preposterous, upside-down notion that where we see thriving and fulfillment and a life of flourishing begin to take place is in being agents of peace, being people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, being people who are poor in spirit, band you guys can come on up as we've read through these beatitudes as we continue in on the sermon on the mount I just am so convinced of this reality that there should not be a people who are more eager to seek peace who are more ready to extend forgiveness than Christians I believe that with all my heart that if you consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, man, I think we as collective people should be the first people to run into those areas and seek peace, to offer and extend forgiveness because seeking peace and extending forgiveness is at the very heart of the gospel the second half of this statement in verse 9 that blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God you and I as followers of Jesus are called children of God because of the reconciling work of Jesus that's it we didn't do anything to earn it you couldn't achieve it on your own there's nothing that you have done in your life that somehow sets you apart or merits salvation more than anyone else the reason why we get to embrace these realities, the reason why we get to walk out in our identity as children of God, is because Christ is the greatest example of what it means to be a peacemaker. He's done all the work to make peace. Ephesians chapter 2, for he himself is our peace, Paul says, For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace. Paul says right here that that in the work of Jesus In the cross of Christ, he has made peace between two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, who never should have been able to coexist. But in his death, in his life, in his resurrection, Christ has united these two groups of people. He is our peace. He has made one humanity because of the work that he has done on the cross. He continues in verse 16, Paul says, and in one body, he did this to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by the Spirit. Not only did Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection make peace between these two groups of people, He made peace between them and the Lord and it was done and accomplished through the cross and you and I today as followers of Jesus the only reason that we have right standing before the Lord is because of the same work of Jesus that the death the resurrection the blood that was shed is what gives you and I access to the Father by the Spirit I can't help but believe that if we truly embrace that reality, how could we not be peacemakers? Jesus is the greatest depiction of this. And if we see the length and depth of his love for us and the immeasurable suffering that he went through so that we might be at peace with God, how could we not step into areas of tension and conflict and seek peace with a brother or sister, with a friend, with a family member, with a coworker? I believe this just is going to be so central to the DNA of a follower of Jesus. I want to close by just reminding us that as we are wrapping up and getting towards the end of this Beatitude section, that it would be a terrible mistake if we read these scriptures. In a way that said, okay, well, I just have to be a peacemaker, then God's going to bless me. This is not some sort of formula of if you are a peacemaker, then you are blessed. That's not the way that the scripture would teach us. And if we're honest, again, I think that's a way in which we would want to seek to manipulate the hand of God. If I do this, then he's got to do this for me. This is Jesus's invitation into a life abundant. This is his invitation into a life of blessedness. And blessing does not often manifest in the way that you and I like. It does not often manifest in a way that we might often think so often doing the right thing does not mean that everything works out perfectly in the end. It might be that we go and extend forgiveness and and somebody doesn't want to forgive. But we're called to be peacemakers. It might be that That in our life, as we would approach a brother or sister, we might fumble our words. We might accidentally say something or communicate in a way that we didn't mean and we might have to offer, again, our our apologies for that. But but let us not be a people that are just sidelined because we're tolerating sin in our life. Let us be a people who are desperate to seek peace in the life of ourselves and others and in the community of faith that we belong. Would you stand with me? I'd love just to pray. Lord, we, uh, we just long to know and to hear your gospel. God, would you help us to believe the impact, the truth, the reality of the scriptures that tell us that Christ, you have lived and died and been resurrected so that we might be at peace with the Father. God, and from that place, from seeing and understanding the depth of your love, understanding that you are our peace, Jesus, that you would give us the power and the courage to step into the places that are so difficult, they're so challenging. God, as we see the suffering that you endured on our behalf, that we would be motivated and compelled by the love of Christ to seek peace pray, Lord, that a mark of this church, of Anchor Church, God, is it is full of peacemakers, full of people who take seriously the call, that as children of God, because we are your child, we are called to seek and make peace in the lives of others. Father, we love you, and it's in Jesus' name, amen.